Hello and welcome to episode 8 of the Ski Instructor Podcast. My name is Dave Burrows, I'm the director and owner of Snow Pro Ski School based here in uh, the Port de Soleil in Switzerland. Um, this week uh, I went over to see Phil Brown uh, of Impulse Racing um, and he was uh, he lives in the Aosta Valley so for me it's a, a trip up and over the col and we've had a bit of a heat wave here uh, this week in, in Switzerland. Temperatures here have been... 37 38 39 degrees it's been uh, it's been absolutely crazy so it was brilliant to to jump on the motorbike head over the col and it was beautifully uh called the grand saint bernard and it was beautifully cold over there and uh and then head down into into the elster valley uh to go and see phil um but meaning to catch up with phil for a while because i think he offers us a, a really different perspective um perspective in terms of uh in terms of what he does so phil is a year-round um ski racing coach so it's completely different um to everyone that we've spoken to before um and uh, and in this episode we we talk um certainly in this first half about skis about his business um owning a business in the ski industry uh the ski schools racing scene and uh and collaboration and, and how we can all uh, work together to make uh, make this business that we're all in um, a little bit better so uh, so enjoy the first half I had a lovely chat with Phil he's a really really nice guy um, and, uh, and I'll catch you uh, on the second half So Phil Brown, welcome to the podcast. How are you? Ah, oh, very well. Very Good. Well, thanks. Yeah. I've had a very, very pleasant ride over on the motorbike. The Italian side of the Grand Saint Bernard Pass is one of the great biking roads in Europe. I think mm, it's nice up there, and it was nice and cool up there, which is one of the hottest days of the year so far with us. So, um, so thank you for for making the time and encouraging me to come <laughs> over. It's uh, good. So, um, one of the first things I've got on my box is how how do I know you? And I think you sold me a pair of skis once, which is kind of how we were first in yeah. touch. And then obviously this last uh, this correspondence that we've had. So, uh, this pair of skis are still going. Cool. They're doing pretty well. They're my favourite <laughs> teaching ski. My teaching ski is like a twenty five meter radius uh, head one eight six. That's my like daily skier, which yeah. I find is not quite enough to rip shortish turns, but it's 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 a a long comfortable ski to be on most of the time yeah it's not it's but it's reasonably relaxed yeah you don't <laughs> yeah t- t- teaching all day on a set of slaloms can be quite fatiguing well that's why <laughs> i've always thought that and um and it's true and often you have on the gs skis you have a slightly softer shovel so it kind of yeah. just makes them a bit more cruisy day to day. You can be quite fore aft in your actions, and you don't have to be t- totally on top of a slalom ski all the time. I used to ski on a slalom ski all the time, everything on a slalom ski. Oh yeah. Um, yeah, and then probably probably about twelve years ago, I started playing around with other skis mm. for my for general skis, and I think at the time, most of the manufacturers bringing out something about ninety underfoot. Yeah, that actually yeah. had a good construction to it. Yeah, and I ended up using or tr- testing a pair of uh, head motorhead rock and rolls. Okay, don't know if you remember the motorheads. They they did a deal with with the group Motorhead, and they <laughs> named a series of of their their fatter skis after Motorhead albums. I had the rock and roll, the sacrifice, yeah, something yeah. else. Yeah. I got these rock and rolls, and they became my go-to ski, and they've developed into the core series. It's that that kind of uh, right. that kind of ski developed through into the core series, which 
I've now got, and we I use quite a lot, and yeah, ice speeds and things like that. So yeah. I don't ski on my slaloms that much anymore. You have a deal with head, right? Yeah. Yeah. So so I'm also and thanks for putting me in touch with Mike. That was, no problem. That was good of you, but the um. But yeah, so I just ordered, so in addition to that GS set, which I'm going to keep because it's a nice ski, but I also ordered the, I think it was the iSpeed Pro and the iRace Pro. Mm. And I tried the iRace Pro in a 170, but that was a that was a really twitchy ski. It's like a slightly detuned slalom ski. Yeah, yeah, it didn't want to run straight at all. Yeah. You know, it didn't want to be in the transition for very long either. So I ordered it the next level up in 175, and maybe that'll be, that'll take some of that, yeah. that snappiness out of it. I'm not sure what the iSpeed Pro is going to be like. Nice. Maybe, I skied it? a pair, the uh, SCGB ski test right. was here this year in Pila. Okay. Uh, here again next year. So I just stuck my head in and... and Got out on a couple of different pairs of skis, but yeah. I've ordered a pair of the ice speed pros. The yellow, yeah, the yeah, yellow they're ones. Nice. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it seems like everything that I want it to be, so a slightly more turny version of a long, long GS ski. But we'll see, see how that goes. I and suppose. you won't be missed on them because they are quite bright, <laughs> bright yellow, aren't they? Yeah. They I are. thought I was ordering the white one, and then I went back to the when the order compo came through. I was like, oh no, they're almost a fluoro yellow. A fluoro yellow with white boots. Yeah. And great green poles. So I'm going to look like a right <laughs> fashion victim next year. The only thing you, people will notice you, so you have to ski well all the time. <laughs> you can't be lazy. Well, well, that's actually one of the mantras that I give to my team all the time. It's like you never know who's going to be watching, so you must, you know, it might, and and that applies to other instructors, tourists, clients, whatever, or you know, like this seven year old kid who, you know, he's looking for a bit of inspiration one day, and you might rip past him and and that sets him on his way for for a skiing career or something like that so you know I always tell my guys you're always being watched doesn't matter yeah it's it, it's something that when I run courses for UKCP that I say to the candidates on there if you are in front of a group no matter what you're doing try and have reasonable reasonable form don't be a lazy skier because mm-hmm. Lots of those people, you don't know when you first meet them how they learn, whether they're visual learners or not. Yeah. But they will watch how you ski mm. because you are their instructor, yeah. coach, whatever. They will think, you know what you're doing. I'm going to watch you. Yeah. And if you if you ski a little lazy, drop your hands down, stuff like that, they'll pick up on it. I couldn't agree more. They may not realise they're picking up on it, mm. but they'll pick up on, on how you ski and they will, in all likelihood, copy and mimic. Yeah. So, the mimic thing is, is strong, right? So you're, I mean, you're a relatively new father as well, and you, yeah. you've seen that in your own kids, right? Yeah, one day like you accidentally picked your nose or something. Next thing you know, like your kids got, you got your finger up the nose. It's and amazing. be very careful what you say. Oh my your child! <laughs> they, they, oh my god! They yeah. repeat, yeah, <laughs> but yeah. But it's exactly the same. People, yeah. people move into something new, uh, maybe different from what they've done before. So even if they're a good skier, hmm. um, they move into. Perhaps because we see a lot of people going for their ISIA, coming in and doing level one coach because it's a part of um, the module for an, for an ISIA. Yeah. And they look at it and it's different. So they come in with a, oh, this is all different. I need to I need to pay attention and watch. And they'll watch how you're skiing and think, well, maybe I should change what I do to that. And actually, it's, it's maybe you're not skiing the way you should in front of the group. Mm, mm. 
No, that's true. So you deliver that for IAZ then? So when the, there's that a coaching works. module? I do I, I do Snowsport England, so yeah. UKCP, which United Kingdom coaching pathway, which was started out as a joint effort between Snowsport England, Snowsport Wales, Snowsport Scotland and Basie. Mm-hmm. Basie pulled out and it's now... The home nations, so I deliver for the home for the home okay. nations. So I could deliver for any one of the home nations. Yeah. On that, and more recently, I've become involved as an educator with IAZ on the coaching side of things. So mm-hmm. level one and level two coach for oh, okay. IAZ. Yeah. And those modules sit where in the IAZ? Are they within the level three? The level one sits within the level three. Okay. Same same as the way Basie run theirs. Where oh, the level okay. one so is level within the level three, and the level two is within the level four. I understand. So they are modules of. The, the greater yeah. teaching level. Why did why did Basie pull out of the UKCP coaching module? Was it just because they wanted to run their own and take that money and put it in their pocket? That's that's one theory. <laughs> Maybe that's one theory. <laughs> Allegedly, another theory is about control. Yeah, because um, there were there are people that tutor that aren't I the, the UKCP that aren't ISTD, right? But are level three and level four coaches. Mm. So they are at the top within the coaching framework, but they haven't done the ISTD for whatever reason that might be. Mm. Um, so the, there's a theory that about control, and there's another theory that they felt that they needed to run their own to comply with um, the uh, agreement they have with Edinburgh University mm. um, for the, all the qualifications to align with these education credits mm. um, but that, oh I suppose yeah, yeah. yeah so those, there's, there's the three kind of those are the three potential reasons but I, I've never really got to the the bottom of exactly why it was mm. it's a shame because it was they were they were the driver mm. to bring it in mm. as, a, as a joint um, effort between the, the different bodies yeah and it's it's, it's a good to be fair it's, it's a good um Qualification in terms of if someone wants to coach but is not going down the teaching route, yeah, it is a standalone qualification. They do the course, they then do at level one and at level two. They do the course, they then go and work with a a club and a mentor mm. and work through a series of tasks before they get signed off to be licensed. Yeah, but that then gives them a license to work within a particular remit. Um, through and there's a level one, level two, and level three mm. out there courses at the moment. Okay. Yeah. No, that's good. All right. But your so if we jump back a little bit, so your your history is you, you know you learn um, like so many people actually that we we've, we've spoken to so far, you've learned on a on a dry slope originally back back when you were learning how to ski many years ago and uh, teaching on a dry slope and then yeah. um, made the move out here eventually. Um, do you want to talk us through a little bit about what your journey's been? I've got it written down in my, yeah. my phone because you gave me a lovely bio, but I think we should probably tell everybody else as well. Yeah, I, 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 went, I went away skiing with a school when I was 12. Oh, way, way a long time ago. Went to a little place called Foppolo oh. over near Bergamo. Flew into okay. Bergamo with Laker Airways, so that kind of dates it. Really. <laughs> Did the plane have propellers? Uh, it was a DC-10. No. It was a DC-10, Come yeah. on. I, I remember it really well. It was the first time I'd flown. Yeah. And um, so we flew in there. I did I did two days. I hurt my ankle somehow, I mm. suspect, with the knowledge I have now that I possibly had ill-fitting equipment. Yes. Um, and I didn't ski the rest of the week. Um, so a few years later, 
as I'm leaving school, I'm looking at careers and I passed some tests to go into the RAF because I was in the, the Air Cadets as a kid. Mm. And this role came up in the local paper, trainee ski instructor wanted. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to go down there and I'm going to have a go. So I had a couple of sessions beforehand and I was not very good. Mm. I was kind of ploughing and swinging to try and bring the other ski around and, and whatever. And I had this interview and we had a little ski ski test and um, I got the job, <laughs> much to my amazement. But being a ski instructor in the 80s on a dry slope was more about did you have the personality that, that they thought would work to teach mm. and were you willing to work, lay ski matting, dig holes, for the maintenance through the summer, etc., because they weren't that busy through the summer service. Yeah. Summer was all maintenance, and Harlow went through a, a massive transformation in the year and a half that I was there. Yeah, and um, with an extension of the slope and a lot of a lot of real grafting work through the summer. Okay, and their 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 idea, and it's very true, was the skiing part of it. We can teach you. Yes, we can help you. We can improve you. Um, so getting involved with the slope within a very short period of time, almost from the first instructor training session I went to, a couple of young lads there that were in the race club said, oh, are you going to come join the race club? Yeah, why not? Sounds like a, sounds like a good laugh. Mm-hmm. And that was it. I was hooked. Uh. I was hooked. So throughout my whole life, and I, I worked full-time on dry slopes for three or four years, I then went into some retail work, building work, Ended up more by luck than judgment working within pharmaceuticals for 15 years um, with some, some great jobs, some really interesting roles. Mm. But on the side of that throughout has been involvement with racing on dry slope and a little bit on snow to start with, but not very much. Mm. And then um, coaching, getting involved with clubs and coaching to the point that the last pharmaceutical role I had, which I was made redundant from, which was the push that I needed to get yeah, into yeah. this. Yeah back in about 2007 but through through the, the early 2000s I was uh, taking all of my free time mm. and buying extra holiday and tweaking my shifts in order to spend as much time as I could running a program for a, an alpine club oh, that's a UK based yeah. alpine club yeah, yeah. took over from the guy that was a coaching mentor of mine mm. and, and continued that and then the redundancy was Great. I walked out of the meeting rubbing my hand again. <laughs> I'm going to walk out with some money and yeah. I'm going to go and do what I want to do. I'm going to at least give this a go. Oh, it's brilliant. Um, and I did for, for the first year, I, I partnered with someone working in Norway. Uh, the, it, the partnership didn't work. We had different ideas, it turned out subsequently. So we dissolved that and then I started Impulse Racing. Hmm. And that's been sort of 11 years in the. In the going then then we started working schools and then a few years ago we created the net founded the national school snow sports association and got other people involved in that so mm. yeah but it's sort of it's been there a lot um of my spare time for many years yeah so full-time to start with spare time for many years and then full-time again it's and that it's that leap isn't it that initial leap where you something to push you yeah. into starting up your own gig and that's often it can often be that kind of thing, you know, yeah. because you have a regular, I don't know, like a nine to five job or whatever, and it pays your regular salary. It gives you a certain amount of comfort. 
what you don't have with that is the freedom to kind of make your own decisions and, and do your own thing. And yeah. I'm I'm all over that. That's that's my. It's it's not my, everybody's uh, cup of tea. No, not, not it certainly. Isn't. I mean, I've I've known um, many people that have dipped their toe in, but the in the in the initial sort of years or months or whatever, the the idea of not having a regular mm. paycheck freaks a lot of people out it sure does yeah you know the, the whole cash flow thing can be very very still very frustrating even even when you've got a, a well-established business sometimes cash flow can be mm. really frustrating i've got uh, relatives that run fairly big companies and they say exactly the same you know, mm. they, they're bouncing into very large overdrafts yeah because don't they work with big orders mm. but with with that comes big big sums of money coming in but gaps between yeah yeah so so it works all the way up the scale that whole cash flow thing and as i say it's not everybody's not not everybody's able to um live like that no it's true yeah. I, i'm very much I'm, i love the idea of kind of living on your wits and it's your ideas <laughs> that make uh make you know it's the that that pressure is what sort of drives you on um that's what it's what it's what it does for me and i i, I kind of love it i revel in it but the you know like i said you're you're right it's not for everybody and there is a reason they say cash flow is king because it, <laughs> it goes, especially in the ski business. Yeah, the snow is only here like you know five months of the year or something. That's it. Um, you really got to be smart about that kind of thing. Exactly, and and <clears throat> the, the the expression necessity is the mother of invention. Mm. Oh. It, it's very yeah. very true. So when you've got to try and fill gaps in in seasons, cash flow, etc., yeah. you look at what what can you do to do that yeah. to to try and smooth that that out mm. and it, it I think it's it's a good position to be put into yeah because it does as you say it makes you live on your wits a little bit mm. it makes you think outside the box in order to change maybe what you do or get take a new direction or diversify yeah 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 and I think diversification is quite important certainly in our in our business yeah yeah well yes yes and no I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of at the moment. I've got. I have looked at some gentle diversification. So we're running a couple of things this year that look slightly different from our core business, which yeah. is teaching people how to ski within our, our certain market. But I think if you go too far away from that, you, you there is yeah. danger of diluting your your core product. Um, but yeah, it doesn't hurt to have a couple of side projects here and there for sure. Um, I don't know how that how that manifests itself in, in, in what you what you're doing uh, we have oh. <laughs> <laughs> so so we st- we started out with a club type setup um, so that was that's what impulse, impulse racing. racing became so that's the second iteration you, you split up with yeah. the old business partner guy and then it's you right impulse racing that's this is what we're doing and you based yourself here or? no UK based okay um, running some stuff at UK facilities yeah um, it was around the time the snow centre opened, so we had some camps running the summer at the snow centre, a mm-hmm. um, couple of dry slope camps. Then we would go out in summer to maybe team, mm-hmm. October to team. Yeah. We would then follow the British race circuit. So we would do the Anglo-Scottish races. Yeah. We would do the schoolgirls and schoolboys, the Welsh champs, the English champs, mm-hmm. the British champs, uh, inter-schools races that were in Les Ouches, but have now moved to here yeah. with the British Ski Academy. And we would run training weeks or training periods before each of those. And that oh. was our, our 
business, as it were. Yeah. Now, the, around that time, there was a little bit of a proliferation of, of new organisations as well, mm-hmm. newish organisations. And since then, it's, it almost looks that almost every year, mm. another ex-racer pops up with an academy or a, a club <laughs> set up. Yeah. Now, the number of children that are racing at that, that level and can afford that, that level of racing mm. has remained fairly constant. Yeah. So if you think about it, if you've got more suppliers, there's, there, market, there's right? less people to go around. It, it yeah. kind of, it does tend to saturate the market. And we, we looked at that and thought, how can we, A, be different, how can we stand out? Mm. But how can we feed our, our business? And we started working with a couple of schools. Okay. Now we we started working with them for some regular UK training, and then we took them to things like schoolgirls, the interschools, etc., and focused mm. on on those races. With the thought that as children come through to school, the the ones that want to carry on racing will move into the club, etc. Yeah. What we didn't realise that there was a huge, almost untapped market there, mm. and before long that the school stuff grew its up grew legs mm-hmm. and it became its own entity mm. if you like and we started working with quite a lot of schools we started taking you know bigger numbers to these races yeah and decided to set up this schools under impulse so it's just a different trading name yeah but just so that people knew we did schools mm-hmm. and at that point we went when they're not feeding through at the minute so actually let's let's reduce what we do let's not go to the english and it's got the british and stuff like that let's let's put that on the back burner for now and if we get the odd ones or two coming through there's plenty of people we can pass them to mm-hmm. um, and focus on the schools and it's been it's been great it's been good fun and it's been quite successful mm-hmm. we then looked at within that we what else can we do within the schools? There's a there's a historical organisation in the UK called Eskia, the English Schools Snowsport, a Skia Association. Mm-hmm. They run a series of dry slope races in the autumn. Kids progress from those dry slope races to an English Schools Champs and then on to a British Schools Champs. We looked at what they do. We had had numerous parents speak to us about they run a squad as well mm. and parents were very questioning of how they selected their squad etc and people said to us why don't you do something similar why don't you why don't you run a some races etc and we're like if there's demand mm. then we'll do it so we spoke to Hemel and we decided to run the first best chance which was something like I think seven or eight years ago yeah and we ran that and we ran it in the September at Hemel and we ran it on a Monday mm. for a number of reasons the the summer race calendar, I don't know if you're aware, but the UK summer race calendar is extremely busy. I can imagine. If you wanted to, you could race every day of every weekend from the end of April to almost the end of September. Really? Yeah. Huh. And That's on, quite a on, grassroots scene then, isn't and it? On, on many of those weekends, there are, there are three or four different races in different venues. Oh, really? Yeah. There's, and it's cla- there are some clashes, and uh, the governing bodies, Snowsport England, etc., are trying to reduce the clashes. Um, but you might have a national race on 
in Scotland, so one of the GBR series, which are the, mm. and and the Eastern Region and London and South East Region might be running a regional race yeah. on those that weekend. So as an example, so thinking that if we run it all weekend, it's just not. It's going to be difficult to mm. find. Mm. So running on a Monday gave us a couple of sort of benefits, if you like. A, the centres were more amenable mm. because they didn't have as much demand on their time. Yeah. B, it wasn't going to clash with the the regular calendar and see it meant that we had to get the school's buy-in so we had to make sure that the school approved the absence yeah and that uh, to be fair sometimes it falls on an inset day but we still tell the parents and the schools that we need to have the school have to be on board yeah, yeah. so yeah. also that so that they're happy that the children are representing the school at the event Mm. Um, and we looked at we looked at the way other schools events are run and that there are we wanted to remove as many barriers as we could and you know other schools race sometimes they have to have a membership of an organisation they or they they can only enter a team of four and that team of four have to all race in the same year group mm. so if a school only have an individual if small school can't raise a team they can't take part yeah if they have a 16 an under 16 and under 14 and under 12 that under 14 and under 12 have to all race in the under 16s okay in order because it's it's done on times within the age group mm. and i thought i looked at all this and i thought you know, some of this just makes it difficult for people to it, it's people are used to it yeah. actually to have an under 12 racing up or, or whatever i think is not fair on on that kid and and to to eliminate any school that cannot raise at least a team yeah. is is not as inclusive as we'd like to be. So we, we looked at how to do it and we came up with a we came up with a way that we we have the races, they are an in two two runs on an individual slalom, the fastest run to count. So if somebody doesn't make a run, their mm. day's not done. Okay. They they have a second chance. The teams can be spread across the age groups within the school mm-hmm. and they in order to give the team result, they get a point. So right. And an example within each age group and gender, first place gets ten and it goes down to one, mm-hmm. and it's the best three pointed skiers from that team. There's team price. That's, that's it, and yeah. that's how it works. It takes a little bit of working out, and initially, it, you know, it was a bit of a headache. I, I mean, I still go and shut myself away after. Yeah. <laughs> I've got the individual results; they're really easy to get, and I yeah. go away and shut myself away and and do the do the formula. But it's it's good, and for me, the feedback we get on the events. Is makes it worthwhile. Yeah, uh, it's fun to run. It's a lot of work in the lead up. On the days of the events, I tend to walk around talking to parents, etc. Because what we do, again, different from other races, I use a coaching team on the hill to run the race. Okay, we have very little volunteer yeah. effort. We ask teachers or parents that are attending the race. We we have about maybe eight volunteers mm. and they're used really just at the bottom of the hill the top of the hill and within because all our races at the minute are indoors yeah and and within the changing era to line the kids up get them in line get them up the hill yeah and lined up and then the coaches run everything else oh, that's good so they know what they're doing i've got a good team so with the international school races what we often have sometimes is because the course is probably a little bit longer than yeah. than than in indoors but like you've got a you, all of the schools have to try and find numerous parents to be gatekeepers and yeah. stuff and that 
wouldn't say it causes resentment, that's the wrong word, but it's it's a it's a pain to be sitting, you know, in a cold, shady corner on a race day and end of January. It's, it's you know, tough. sitting there on yeah. a little chair like ticking off hundred and fifty races going down or something. It's it's not it's not great. If you can do it with staff, it's much better, I think. Yeah. And we do that indoors and for the for the event we run out here, we try and do as much of that as we can with staff as well. Mm. And the races are relatively low-key, and the reason they're relatively low-key is so that we get more kids that haven't raced to come along. Mm. We we obviously get schools that build a team around a kid who might be a national team kid. Um, but what's much more heartening for us is there's a far greater number of novice and less experienced racers that take part. Yeah. And that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to get those kids in, trying to get them involved. And you're building the pyramid to a certain extent, aren't you? The more that you get in at the yeah. bottom of any any kind of a coaching pathway like that, it's the same. You know, when you look at the Swiss and the Austrian national team, and all the you know, the the, the more participation you can get at a lower level, the greater the chance you'll have of, of having having some really cool kids come through. And and that's it. And that, it harks back to us looking at this finite group of kids mm. that are racing at the kind of national and international level. I'm thinking, how can we, how can we grow that? Mm. So what we're doing is trying to, to make that bigger. Try yeah. and get more kids through, and we've been we've been successful insofar as um, clubs near some of these schools have had an influx of some of the kids, mm. which is great. Places like Brentwood and Hemel have, have certainly picked up new members, and some of those members have gone on to race on Alpine events and with Alpine clubs and, mm-hmm. and academies. Yeah. So. That's really good, and we're really pleased. And the, fir- the first race we ran had 180 kids, which is good numbers. Yeah. And we were like, wow, that's that's that fantastic. Yeah. And we now run the ones at Hemel run. We took two at Hemel a year at the minute, 400 plus kids. It's crazy. Um, Northern event we started three years ago with 70 kids, then 140 kids, and 170 kids this year. Is the slope hold up okay? Yeah. Yeah. What. For the four hundred, yeah, it, we split it. We have well, we have junior schools in the morning, yeah, senior schools in the afternoon. Separate course for girls and separate course for boys. You so you taking you, the whole place up? Yeah, we take yeah. the whole of Hemel up. Yeah, on a Monday. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Manchester, we take half the slope. Hamish yeah. is a little wider, and we could get away with that. And the numbers are smaller as well. So, mm. uh, it's a yeah, it's an interesting thing that participation thing because that also flips over from you know you're talking about coaching and, and being within a club framework, but it also flips over into tourism. When you were just yeah. talking about it there, it, it this when we were first starting up and and uh, a couple of people from rival ski schools sidled up to me and said you know you shouldn't be doing price promotion, you shouldn't be trying to get people here. I'm like, no 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 no, you you all right, you have an established business, but you clearly don't understand how this works you're assuming that the pie is like a finite size right yeah it, it, it's not you know like you can attract as many people as you want to this resort it's literally literally but it is it potentially limitless and all you have to do is kind of grab these people here and get them participating in skiing i'm not stealing your business it's not working like that you know, I've I've t- got these clients and I've marketed to them and I've brought them here. Otherwise, they would be in a different resort. Stupid. You know, the more people you get in, the bigger everyone everyone profits. I, I, I sat on a on a forum um, a few years ago for I don't know if you've heard of Listex. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah well, f- um, it started out by a friend of a friend of ours. Okay. 
and I sat on a forum about startups within the industry. And there's there's not many people from a teaching or race background to go along, but it's mm. it's quite a good networking event. Yeah. To look at creating collaborations outside of this little bubble mm. that we sometimes yeah, yeah, restrict sure. ourselves to. Yeah. Now, the I sat on this uh, forum with Tom Saxland. Okay. Now, I've met Tom a few times over the years, and and I suggested that that James get Tom to come along and Tom came out with a similar analogy yeah. he said people are afraid of, to, to collaborate because they want to keep their slice of the pie mm. he said but if we collaborate we may not grow our we may not have a bigger slice of the pie but between us we make the pie bigger mm. and it stuck with me because it's a, it's a great way of looking at it oh, 100% it's, you're not yeah. collab if you work with me it doesn't mean we're going to steal each other's business no. it? it means we're going to increase the amount of business there is yeah. and everybody wins yeah. you know it's what you want right you yeah. want a busy resort yeah it's, uh, yeah it's a very small mindset that and I couldn't believe it actually when that person said it to me but it exists a lot yeah. still a lot within certainly within within race clubs and organisations it exists within ski schools it exists within business as well yeah. certainly yeah. within the snow sports business yeah. and yeah, we've been quite good at and, and tried very hard to create more collaborations. Um, things like getting, we were very fortunate last year um, through a number of different uh, movements, we managed to start working with a ski club, Great Britain. Mm. Now, they saw us as something that could help them, and we saw them as, you know, they've got a great, they, they've got a great reach and they could help get what we do out to people. Our demographic works for them in terms of they they want to try and increase their me- their, their younger membership, mm. so you know everybody wins again. Yeah. Um, we started working through chance again. Um, we were at, we've gone along to a schools race that's run in Lidders Alp every December, and it was run by Base Camp, who were owned by a company called Ticket to Ride. And yeah. Ticket to Ride sold Base Camp mm-hmm. to Hallsbury Ski. Holsbury are a school's tour up, yeah, essentially. Yeah, yeah. And they came along, we got talking to them because we were running a lot of the stuff on the hill for, for base camp. Mm. We'd gone along a few years before and said, Look, we're interested in, in getting involved in this event, and our, our involvement's grown and grown. And Holsbury came along and went, this is, We love this event and mm. we can help it grow under, under what we do, but we want you guys involved. And from there, they've now come on board with. Uh, working with our indoor races, mm. they've then sponsored Snowsport England's National School Snow Sports Week, which is running this week. So okay. they've again, it's that collaboration. Everybody, mm. everybody wins by working together rather than yeah. putting yeah. it all into themselves and not not wanting anybody else to have a little bit of it. No, it's um, yeah, like I said, I, d- I don't think this industry helps itself. To be honest with you, when I read some of the stuff in media, you know, every, all all of the every other article I see on on certain social media groups is about you know how the world's warming up and the places are retreating and all this sort of stuff. It's like, oh, you can be as doomy as you want, but you know, it's not like the snow is gone. Yeah, you know, there's there's snow out there. The snow tech for making snow is improving massively as well. And we should be encouraging people to do this sport, you know. Like you look at the general populace, especially in places you know, US, Canada, UK, like people are getting fat, are less fit. 
he should be encouraging people to get out yeah. on the hill more not not kind of writing it off it's bizarre it's really bizarre some of the stuff that is written um, it doesn't help anyone like you say if everyone was kind of working in the right direction we could we could we, we could attract so many people to yeah. support I mean t- just talking about that the people getting fatter or less fit mm. I went to a really interesting presentation uh, in Bulgaria with uh, the Germans right and they have their ski federation has got Felix Neurata on board okay and they're going in, they are working with schools yeah. in order to increase all sports participation mm. uh, and movement and trying to get yeah. away from this uh, issue where we get a lot of people that end up with a very sedentary yeah. lifestyle. Yeah. They're trying to, to increase the awareness of sports and, and bring it through their schools mm. in order that it becomes a lifestyle rather than well, the, the Swiss do a similar thing. So I recently was, um, it was a year or two years ago, I was at a Jeunesse Espoir um, football qualification that I was doing for, a, for for something to do with the Swiss FA. And um, and they have the same thing. So in, within, built literally into the structure of their schooling and, and their sort of their life, is this kind of, right, you've got to get out, you've got to move, you know, this is, this is kind of, it's, it, it's programmed in. Yeah. Um, and that's why you know every weekend all the Swiss they're all, they're off off doing something. Doesn't matter what it is, but they're doing something. Yeah. Um, and you see a lot of very kind of athletic people kicking around around our way. Even in the cities, actually, you don't see too many kind of uh, out of shape people wandering around. Um, it's a you know it's a real problem, but it's cultural, I think. Very much so, I think, and it, I don't want to belittle some sometimes PE at school but sometimes certainly in the state there is less and less time being given yeah to yeah. PE in school mm. and less and less emphasis on it and selling off uh, selling off what would have I, been playing land to yeah. uh, to for, for development I have a massive massive bugbear about the UK education system the UK state education system about it being all about ticking boxes in order for the schools to be um, measured yeah, yeah, so PE gets put on the back burner. PE doesn't have the kind of credence I think it should have. Mm. And we end up, as a result, with children that are put off PE. Sometimes by the way it's taught, sometimes mm. by the fact it's almost non-existent in some of the schools. Yeah. Uh, it's not made fun. It's there, there are a limited number of sports being taught. It's it becomes very difficult then. I wouldn't want to be a PE teacher in a, no. in a state school these days no. because it's very difficult to try and push the envelope and, and do something different. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. We do, we, I'll be honest with you, within what we do, the bulk of the schools are independent. Mm. We're working very hard to try and bring more state schools in. Yeah, State schools find it harder to, to step into doing something, even at their local slope sometimes because of the the risk oh. the perceived risk risk assessments that drive you crazy yeah. yeah yeah you know yeah so it, that frustrates me and, and one of the things we would like to do and through so a couple of years ago we founded the national school snow sports association to try and do this and it sits on its own as a not-for-profit mm. and the races come under its umbrella that we run other stuff that we're doing comes under his umbrella we also work with other organisations mm. to try and 
and bring snowboarding and freestyling oh, cool. for schools. Don't, I can't see that they'll be as big as the Alpine because the Alpine's more accessible. Mm. Although, to be fair, freestyle in the UK is becoming more accessible. Mm. But as we as we do that, what we want to try and do is build up a a pot of money. Yeah. And that pot of money can be used to help get other kids into the sport. Yeah, that kind of scholarship. But, but, but whatever like way we yeah. can do it, scholarships yeah, yeah. and bursaries, etc. Yeah. So so that's that's the vision we have for for that. And there's other people that sit on the committee of that. And we founded it. We had the, the initial idea, but actually, it's it's not just my baby. It is something that sits there and we have input from other people and it's a nice thing to be part of mm. um, it's kind of taking what we've done with schools taking it further yeah yeah, yeah. affiliated it to, to Snowsport England so that we have that that backing mm. and hopefully it will continue to grow that's really good isn't and, it and that's hopefully really make good. some changes yeah to, yeah to the way Snowsports might be perceived from the state education sector. Mm. You know, it's not to say we don't get many schools. In fact, our Manchester race, we had a, a state school from Beersden in Glasgow mm. won their category, mm. which is fantastic. Mm. From, from my point of view, yeah. it's great because I went to a state school in Harlow. Yeah. You know, I've, my, my background is not yeah. come, coming through an independent school. Yeah. But as say people and people have pointed us and go, you only want to work with independent schools. Like, we want to work with all kids. Yeah. The fact of the matter is, the, the the finance side of of skiing, certainly more affluent people are going to be the ones doing more and going on our alpine camps more until we can get to a position yeah. where we can help some of these other guys. Yeah. Go further. Yeah, you can't really get away away from that it, element of it, is it? Yeah, and it can happen. Dave Riding comes from yeah. a very working class background. Yeah. Laurie Taylor, yeah. another one following on Dave's Dave's heels. Mm. So it's possible. Yeah. It's possible um, that they can do it. A lot of hard work. But it's a lot of hard work no matter how much money you've got. Well, if you, if you, come into, you come into this sport and you want to be World Cup racer, mm. you're not going to be able to buy your way there. There's, I don't think there's any aspect of life where you can, you can do that. Can no. you know? Like in any sport, everything has become so perfect. I can't think of any sports now that are amateur really anymore no um, and you know to get to anything that is that you know to get to the top in anything these days I think you have got you've got to be ultra professional and ultra hard working yeah I don't think there's a I don't think there is anything any other sport where that I can't um, think of any you look at the videos that, that fly around the um, social media these days of, mm. of some of the winter sports athletes training oh, really? in the summer some of the stuff they're doing is like phenomenal yeah. In, yeah. in order to to keep fit and of course you know, to get a tiny advantage right? and equipment's getting better yeah and one of the problems with equipment getting better it's it's equipment is pushing more force through the body mm. and things are breaking yeah and I saw a stat last year the number of injuries in the World Cup so there's over 40 like serious injuries or something it was crazy like yeah. a massive amount equipment's got a big part to play it's pushing more force through the bodies I think there's a I have a theory that you know no matter how strong you get you can't make your ligaments stronger no you can't you can't build them like you can muscle yeah and you can you can in fact put yourself in a position where they're under more strain mm. and one of the things one of the things about ACL injuries 
I was speaking to a guy who's for his ISTD mm. has done a dissertation on ACL injuries and he was saying that one of the things they found is they call it the slip catch they start an athlete starts to, mm. to go gets caught in the back yeah. and they're strong enough to, to recover but actually when they recover they put so much strain uh. they pop the ACL yeah. So then that's becoming there's becoming more instances incidences of that. So in effect, the strength is not helping them in that situation. In, in some cases, yeah. Huh? The problem is they have to be they have to be strong. It, yeah. it's almost a catch twenty two situation, isn't it? Yeah, oh, I, I think. You're and right. I'm sure it's the same in in other sports with kit with equipment in other sports. And, yeah. And the strength in other sports, it's it's just getting that balance. So so flexibility then becomes mm. the the key issue. I think to be more flexible. So your your joints and ligaments are used to being yeah. put into those positions, positions becomes a far more beneficial route to take in order to avoid injury. Well, I think it, I don't know whether this is the case, but some of the like you say the social media stuff you see of athletes training, they're doing a lot more um, things that look like a blend of strength and agility, yeah, rather than just outright going and hitting the iron in the yeah. gym. Um, that's what it looks like to me, um, but I, I, I don't know whether you know it's only a snapshot of yeah. their entire training program. They might be doing three hours in the gym as well. You don't know. Um, yeah. I think certainly the downhill guys probably still need to have a lot of strength, yeah, more and so than agility. I'd say there's there's much more education and and work that's gone into programs these days than five years ago or ten years ago mm. or twenty years ago. And just dropping back to what you're saying about athletes being so much more professional, you'll probably remember seeing pictures of James Hunt and uh, Barry Sheen <laughs> yeah. standing with a pint in their hand and, well, a, yeah. and a cigarette. Yeah, you know, you just wouldn't see that these days. No, I don't think you would, and that's that's a shame in some ways. <laughs> <laughs> I think because you know there are there, there are characters that are lost to, yeah. to that professionalism. And Tomba party until three in the morning before racing. Yeah. Yeah, but that, you just don't get away with that these days, I no, think. Not Which is all. a shame. It's a real shame. Not at all. How much do you think, since you, you probably see a fair amount of this, I, I would imagine, as you're going up through the age groups, but the these guys aren't racing on what you know, typically your tourist skier or, or holiday skier would call snow, is it really? A lot no. of the slopes of the rice injected. I mean, it's, I understand the need for it, but I wonder if that contributes to injuries too. Potentially, potentially. The, the problem is it, it also levels the playing field as much as possible. Okay. Injected snow. Uh, there's, there's less chance for it. and But we have seen this change in the last few years with, with temperature extremes at mm. the beginning or end of the season. You know, some of these guys, some of the best in the world look, pos- this is, try not to take this out of context, no. look positively average when the conditions really change so you're probably thinking about towards the end of i'm not putting words in your mouth but i'm thinking looking at the end of the world cup season last year yeah. once Hersha had wrapped it all up and then i don't know whether he fell away because he's just kind of lost interest there's rumors that he's going to retire and whatnot but the you know he definitely didn't look as good in slush as he does on the real hard stuff. no it becomes harder to ski in and i think um the the, the high idea but behind injected piece is in order to to level it as much as they can but there's only so much they can do when mm. the weather is yeah. involved 
Yeah, yeah. And yeah, it's it's. I mean, if if you've if you've ever tried to stand on one of those places and side slipped yeah. without absolutely race razor sharp edges, yeah, it it is so slick. Oh, it's ridiculous. You know? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, the, the the level of skill, strength, and ability to be able to do that and ski on that is, is yeah, it's phenomenal. Oh, it is. It's crazy. Absolutely crazy. phenomenal. I remember, I, yeah, I remember being there. Was it Euro testing? I don't know. Does Alp or something like that? Ice injected piece early season. It was just like. We got to race down this, but wow. I mean these these guys, their their general skiing level is, is so high up there. I, I don't know if you've seen, again, Svindel has posted various videos. I think with Red Bull where he's gone, he's gone free riding. Oh yeah, yeah. You know these yeah. these guys have they are the whole package. Yeah, yeah. But when it comes to racing, and the conditions change so severely, mm. they they really. Struggle because mm. because they want to put their ski out there and they want it to just grip and go. Mm. And if that snow is breaking away because it's it's been salted and they've maybe broken through the top crust or mm. whatever, it's it can be really horrible to ski on. And no matter how high your skill level, if somebody's gone down it when it's clean mm. and you're going down at number 30, 40, 50, you know, you've got a real up, uphill battle on that. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I hope you're enjoying uh, this chat that I had with Phil. It's, it's quite a long one. We sat down and chatted for about an hour and a half on 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 record and, and more off of it. And, uh, and in fact, after after we finished the uh, the podcast, we both jumped on um, uh, jumped on the motorbike. Um, Phil's got this beautiful retro scrambler that he's uh, he's he's restored, and we headed into Ayosta Town and had a lovely lunch, um, proper Italian pizza and some tiramisu, and it was uh, it was absolutely fantastic. So uh, in this. Um, in this second half, we, we carry on. Uh, the, the conversation expands to kids, languages, devices, which I think is a really interesting topic. And uh, fitting in the Oster Valley with um, with his new family, um, we touch on coaching versus instructing, which I think is uh, is an interesting topic, and and the differences between those two. Um, some technical things to do with steering and um, and gait training for kids. So uh, enjoy this second half, um, and uh, and. I'm going to take a short break now. I'm away for uh, for a month or so, but uh, I've got some really good podcasts lined up for you in the autumn. Um, some, some very interesting characters to talk to. Um, so, uh, so have a lovely summer, everybody, um, and uh, and I'll catch you up um, on the next one. Thanks. All right. Um, so, did you when you came? Did you specifically come here? So we listener, we are in the Aosta Valley, which is we're just above uh, Pilar. Is that right? Just above Aosta, below Pilar. We're all right. So we're in the middle of the two. We're in a town called Aosta, which is an old Roman town. Um, it's absolutely stunning here. The Aosta Valley is one of my favourite favourite places on earth. There's skiing up this valley, Pilar, Comayor, various other places. Um, and when you when you based so you moved out here which is seven or eight years ago you said to me we we came here 2011-12 was our first season here and did you come here for Pilar yeah okay because so Pilar you can access so in the middle of this old Roman town not 
middle, but just on the outskirts, there's a telly bubble that takes you all the way up to two and a half thousand meters. It goes from six hundred in town to eighteen hundred at the base of Pila, okay. and then Pila itself goes on to two eight. Okay, so so it's pretty. It's a pretty amazing setup. I, I don't really know anywhere else that's a bit like that, where you can kind of be in the town. An old Roman yeah. town with cobbled streets doing shopping in the morning and then go skiing in the afternoon yeah, at almost 3,000 metres. It's quite amazing. It's quite cool. I mean, there is a resort set net, network up in Pila itself, mm. um, but lots of people stay in town and, and travel up yeah. in gondolas. The gondola's way quicker than driving up unless you're a world-class rally driver <laughs> on a clean road. <laughs> well, did you? so did you move here deliberately? Because this would be one of my, in addition to where I live now, which is, is also beautiful, but if um, this would be also on my... my my list if I was going to move anywhere but did you did you deliberately move here so you could base your sort of skiing operations yeah we did we were looking for at the at that time we were looking to move from a UK based just camps based setup to yeah. actually having a, an alpine base it was the right time for us and a friend of ours was marketing the valley to the UK at the time mm. so he said why don't you go and have a look at Peter I'll Okay, put you in touch with a couple of people and see how it works so we had some meetings and decided we'll, year one we'll give it a go accommodation yeah. in year one wasn't ideal we had a few other issues with massive storms coming through in December that caused Pila to be closed for the first week of the season and a few bits and pieces that you know it, it, all of these things make you make you learn a little bit and you take something out of them but everything on the hill worked yeah, and for me that was right. That's that's it. Mm. We, we found some good colleagues on the hill. Things worked with us, getting lane space on the hill, etc. So it was like that's we're here. So mm. we we're gonna base ourselves here, and we'll work through accommodation stuff. We sorted out over time, and then say two years ago we decided that having a little boy who just turned one at the time looking towards the next season we were do we want to be living in down near Plymouth near, on Dartmoor in the summer and coming out here every winter or do we just want to bite mm, the bullet and make, the move. And make yeah. the move and so that's what we did we made the decision before by Brexit was voted on <laughs> um, but we, we came comes out comes up here. every episode bloody Brexit uh, uh, <laughs> we'll chat about it in a second but we, we moved out here in the November um, friend or colleague who I'd worked with on the hill a lot and put us in touch with the people here and they they, they became our landlords and mm. yeah it's, it's a great little place and it's served us very well little, our little boy now goes to um, private nursery at the minute and he starts state preschool in September is that an Italian nursery? so he's chatting away in Italian not doing much talking but he understands lots yeah we've got friends that will talk to him in Italian and he answers in English okay. when he's around us yeah, I think as time moves on, he'll probably be more comfortable talking Italian around us. But we want yeah. to keep the English going so that he's got that and he's got his Italian. And when he goes to uh, proper primary school, he'll start picking up French because they teach French here. Oh, cool. This is this, this area has been under French rule on numerous occasions. Yeah, that's years. right. It goes back to the forwards. Yeah. It? very much yeah, so. Um, so oh that's um, cool yeah my daughter's doing that but I asked the, the, the girls at the question the other day and, and they said uh, yeah, so yeah, she chats away in French all day like, yeah. oh alright yeah, he, 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 he comes out he, he comes out with the odd thing in Italian at home we're like oh yeah so it's, it's all <laughs> it's in, in there, there. Yeah, it's yeah. all in there but he's that's um, cool I think he'll probably wait he did this when he walked he walked a little bit late mm. but then he just 
walked. Yeah. He didn't. He he didn't totter a lot. He just. Mm. No, my almost, daughter did the same. Just straight up and gone. That was it. And I think he'll do the same with his Italian. But yeah. he, he's he's he know, he's learning the differences between Italian and English. I I did think it was just that he he recognised that some people spoke differently from others. Yeah. But when we were up um, in resort, he's he's been up and just potted on some skis a couple of times. Um, just took him around the nursery area and up the travelator. Cool. And at the end of every, he only ever does two runs, and he goes, "Can we go to the cafe?" And I thought, yeah. "That's Italian." Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> That's definitely Italian. But we're up there. At February, like this too. We're up there at February yeah. half term, and as we walked in to the cafe that we go to at the top of the nursery area with him, because it's February half term, there are a lot more Brits out here, and he yeah. picked up. He picked up the the chat, and he went. Everybody here speaking English today, Daddy. Uh, and it's like, okay, so you, 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 do know. you get it. You get the, uh, the English and cool. Italian, which I thought was really interesting. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, and your your daughter would be the same. They'll grow up not realising the potential benefits yeah. of being bi or multilingual. Mm, mm. You know, I, I wasn't interested in language at school, but mm. as I've moved through life and with the things I've done, I've a number of times thought, really should have paid attention, really should have worked harder on languages when I was younger. Because Italian, it really helped. Yeah. My Italian's okay. You can get by. My French is better. Yeah. But yeah, my Italian, I can get by, but it's something I need to put concerted effort into. I'm thinking of learning Italian next, and it's kind of, uh, French is reasonably good, it's enough to, to run a business and everything, yeah. you know, so it's it's good, but, but Italian is next on my hit list, and I'm, it's a bit more of a purer language. Yeah. It's less fussy than French, from what I can see, it's kind of, you know, it looks a bit cleaner to there's, me. There's, there's some really interesting similarities with the French, like yeah. days of the week and things like that. Yeah. But then you've got really odd things like the word for afternoon. Yeah. Pomerigio. Pomerigio, yeah. Where's that come from? Yeah. It's a really <laughs> just like, completely off the wall. Yeah. Well, luckily no one uses it, I suppose. But uh, yeah, the. Um, oh, that's cool. That's fantastic. So, and, and you're the. So, how does it work without wishing to delve into a massive conversation about qualifications and whatnot you're you're are you here as set up as a coach or you're i can't i don't even know what so you're <laughs> full cert in some system i would imagine I, in order I'm, to be able to work here yeah, in the Oster valley because they have their own rules here too they the do we, we're treated as a club right and i'm qualified through the through the coaching system but okay. I, I also have sia okay which in the Alistair Valley, you can work as a as a, an instructor yes. for the entire season if you fill in the right paperwork. Yes. But we've, I've always, re, I've always let people know I'm here. Yeah. But actually, because we're under the the sort of club umbrella. Yeah. That we get treated quite as a club. Yeah. And um, we work alongside the. There's four or five local clubs that yes, work up there. And work yeah. alongside them. For example, if we've only got a couple of people one week. Yeah. We'll go and jump in with somebody else. Okay. We'll often have if we if we if we've got a busy week, we'll have some of the other guys will come over and go. Can we ski your course? Oh, Can cool! We jump in and, and they're is, all alright with that. And yeah, they're all really oh, cool. Oh, that's with good. It. Took that's some time. Took some time to win some of the, yeah, some of the kind of older coaches over. But you know, we all do the same jit thing. They've seen that we're here. They seen we live here. Yeah. The interesting thing was when we had Charlie, the amount of people in resort in the maestri and, and whatever that knew who we were and knew who Charlie was oh right it's crazy it's, it's this really yeah sort of jungle drum network yes yes yeah. those crazy English people they've had a, they've had a baby now and they're, they're still here <laughs> and he's here and he's in a yeah. local school yeah yeah 
So it's, oh, that's good. It's quite cool because the Italians love kids. Yes, they do. And and it's almost as you if... You can't walk through Oyster Sound Centre with your kid without kind no. of about 25 old people kind of yeah, you know, stroking bella, their head. Bella. Yeah, yeah, it's we, amazing. But they... So, so I think that that kind of helps in a way because they're like, you're settling down here, you're living here, you're, you're, you're local. Yeah. You know, we get treated very much like that these days. Oh, that's um, good. Well, I think really that's that's really important, that kind of integration. You, you sort of, you're on the hill, you're respectful for everyone. Yeah. And, you know, hopefully they would see that, you know, so you're bringing business to the valley, right? You know, yeah. That's, they're not... They're not blind to that. That's it, and you know some of you're not stealing local race kids to put into your club. That's not no. You know that doesn't work. And yeah, when Charlie gets a bit older, he's going to go and join the race club. Yeah, sure. I do not want to coach him. Yeah, no, that's a (laughs) recipe for disaster. Do you know it can work with some kids? It's worked at the highest level with some kids. Mm. Um, Yeah, Pearson and and Giardelli and and some others. But yeah, I've through the British system, I've seen it and I've seen it go disastrously wrong. Mm-hmm. And I want the parent-child relationship. I want to go out and ski with him for fun. Yes. I don't want him to always be looking at me as his coach. Mm-hmm. So do you know what? There's some great guys here, and also the social side of being in the club. Mm-hmm. He will have fun. He'll, he'll learn to ski. He'll be a skier in some way, shape, or form. Whether he takes that further... Yeah. You can't fail to be sporty living here. No, you can't. The way, the way all the other kids are. So yeah. I'm I'm happy. And if he chooses a sport that I've... If he chooses football, I have no passion for football. <laughs> you can't then, get away from then, that in then, Italy. Then he can guarantee yeah. that I'll, I'll, be a, I'll be a sideline parent. I'll be there supporting him, <laughs> but I'm not going to be there shouting the oath. So, so what, but, you know, whatever he wants to do. But he will... He, he'll learn to ski. He'll have time in the mountains. And that's, mm. for me, that's... It's great for him. While we're on this subject of coaching, um, so let's let's delve into that a little bit. So, the coaching, I'd probably describe myself. Well, I do a bit of coaching. I work with some schools in international schools where we are, and and uh, we we do coach a couple of race teams here and there. And but I'd say probably describe myself more as a ski instructor. That's probably what I do the yeah. bulk of my time. Coaching the whole coaching versus instructing. Um, Argument. Where 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 do you see the greatest differences between the two? I think the only difference is right down at the beginning, um, because you have, you know, as a coach, you you work with someone that can already ski. Mm. The way things are taught at the bottom, and I, it was many years before I did any any Basie mm. qualifications. It was back in two thousand nine at the opening of Hemel. Dave Renouf came up to me I've known him for a number of years through Phil Smith mm. he said to me so uh, where are you with your basic stuff and I'm not really done him Dave I've mm. been coaching like, this is what I do yeah. he went oh okay and at the time and I don't know if they still they still do it but people who had worked for the the, the governing body or the, the federation mm. um, and it works with uh, athletes who have been team members as well there are certain exemptions they get yeah and I was I was fortunately able to skip level one and go straight into level two. Okay. So I was on a level two course with Ed Drake and a couple of other guys. And um, it was interesting <laughs> because we did have some discussions with our, our trainer about the way some of the things were done. And I'd, I'd not disagreeing with it, but saying, 
is it would it be better to do this or that? Oh, yeah. And um, it made it an interesting course. Yeah. But moving up, when I did my, my all my three stuff, uh, my teaching on my three, I tended to run the sessions I ran on that were more like a coaching session. Yes. So I see it once you hit that level, they kind of start melding. Yeah. Your the, the main difference is your clients. Yes. Your clients, stroke athletes, etc. Because if you're only seeing someone for five five days of two hours, or even sometimes just two hours, yeah. you know, you're under pressure to try and make a change to their skiing. Yes. That frustrates me mm-hmm. if I'm ever in a position where I'm, I need to do it. Because for me, it's about putting in effective change, building from the bottom up with foundations. And that takes time. And yeah. Work, working with um, athletes... Or actually, just sometimes we, we, I mean, we have adults that come out and we just work with them. They're not interested necessarily in going through the gates, but mm-hmm. in how they can improve their skiing. So, working with someone over a longer period of time gives you that space yeah. in order to make the smaller tweaks and consolidate them before trying to move on. And, and for me, that makes those changes far more permanent. Yeah. I think it's it's easy as, and I'm there. I'm not saying there's many people out there, but there will be instructors out there that would that will work with someone. I know they've only got them for two hours, and for me, I would I would start them on that journey, and say, you know, this is where you are, and moving on from here, you would do this and this, and if you come back to me, fine. If you go to somebody else, maybe say that to them. Yeah. Whereas there are guys out there that will try and make a make a, a big change, but there's no consolidation in there. No. And yeah, so when that when that, that person yeah. comes back yeah. to skiing, maybe they only ski once a year. They're not gonna they're nah. not gonna have it. It's difficult. It's difficult. You want to keep them happy. You want them to feel like they've got something out of it. But you also, from a from a satisfaction point of view, a, a professional satisfaction point of view, you want to feel that you've done something that actually will help them in the longer term. So yeah, Joe Lamb was talking about this when I interviewed him. He was he was sort of trying to be very precise about which thing he could change. Yeah. on a client that would give the great give them the greatest impact but you're right that's in a limited time situation a person that you might only see once a year um, which I think is a yeah it's, it's a valid point you get to work with guys over a much longer period of time um, and probably shape their performance a little bit better than the, or, or give we, them we, that have, we have the luxury of time to be able yeah, to do it yeah. if, if we're working with somebody over a period rather than uh, just just a short much shorter period so it's um, and something that stuck with me for a number of years I did a a, a coaching course back in 96 with a guy called John Shedden mm. another name that keeps yeah. coming up and yeah. John came out with this thing at the beginning of the course he goes what is a coach and everybody's saying what, what they think coaches in the context of a sport or, or skiing and he says it's a distance. For, uh, it's a vehicle for long distance travel. <laughs> it's like, yeah, actually, yeah. Little analogy works. It works quite well. And it, it mm. is you're, you're looking longer term for your your client yeah. or athlete, etc. You probably build a longer term relationship, don't you, yeah. with your clients than than you do otherwise. That that's yeah. But I, the the thing I'm curious to know is because you get your clients. We have often have the luxury of of having a complete, complete, complete beginner. Then you can build the picture 
from like, the bottom up. From the bottom, make sure there's kind of no flaws in it. I imagine you get guys come to you at whatever age group, but I don't know when you start taking people in uh, in terms of an age, but like you, they must come to you with a certain skill level and maybe a, a couple of inbuilt movement patterns that aren't quite there, so you probably have to do a bit of undoing, I would guess, sometimes. Yeah, I mean, we, we, get, we get kids who are just snow plowing not even started paralleling yet with mm. some of the school groups and that's great because you've got that that ability then to to change them as they move through yeah we get adults who come along with with years of bad habits yeah and yeah it's, it's, the, it's the trying to break it down and undo it but one of my biggest bugbears and it's with both children and adults and it might be it might be for many reasons. Sometimes it's because they've done a lot of skiing in the UK with someone, and I've certainly seen this with with some of the kids. They've done a lot of skiing in the UK with a less experienced coach, trainer, or instructor. Um, and all they do is roll their skis, and they're a passenger on them. They can't do anything with them, and they can't steer or pivot. Yeah. And for me, that's something that we do a lot of when we're bringing any of our clients through is we try and get steering and pivoting happening years ago steering seems to be something so I don't want to jump on you steering I teach steering a lot yeah because it seems to be overlooked to me massively often people are like well how do you turn so I, I push I press yeah you know that, that I've been told to do this pushing the outside ski I'm like well yeah but there's there's more to it than that yeah and there's something to be had for very skillful steering it gets you out of a lot of tricky situations and back when when I learned to ski, probably when you learned to ski, we were on straighter skis. Yeah, we weren't so, on carving skis. Yeah, yeah. So so what's happened is people are more able to once they can stand on them, they can start rolling them. Yeah. And they don't they don't need a particularly high skill level to do that as long as they can hang on, as mm. the ski accelerates. So so we do a lot with people going back to steering, mm. going back to standing well on the ski and. and actually turning the foot mm. you know so that the, when they are on the edge they can then play around and influence the turn rather than just let the ski go where it wants mm. and that's that's my that's my biggest thing with with people we get coming through that we pick up is they've whether it's through what they've done or what's been done with them with a, an instructor or coach mm. they they've got this want to carve want to carve yeah and yeah, you're carving. I mean, you can't yeah. you can't deny that, but you have not got the the full package of control while you're doing it, mm. and you can't put that ski exactly where you want it. Mm. Which, if you had these other skills, yeah, up to a decent level, you'd be able to do. I see an awful lot of people teaching kind of big toe to little toe. So, well, yeah sure but there's other things that you can do to to, to make a ski turn you and know but you, you, you're locked into you go big toe little toe you're yeah. kind of locked into the radius of the ski whether you're skidding it or or, or sort of smearing it yeah. you know rather than or, or edging it um, carving it, it, it and yeah. to use as a drill yeah mm. you know just to, to learn to help them learn that that, that kinesthetic awareness the proprioception and the feel for what's going on mm. great but yeah, not as a way of, of just skiing, mm. and it's, it's 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 similar to, um, to the dry slope racing scene. A few years ago, people started using a ceramic edge, a ceramic stone on their edge. 
right. and it puts a lip on the edge grips mm. fantastically but lots of these kids were doing tip to tail so when they rolled out ski mm. they were locked yeah you know I, I go back if I run a course on the dry I will use a ceramic stone because you I don't know if you know what it's like but when you very rarely ski on dry slope mm. it's very difficult to grip to start with yeah. so I'll sharpen the ski but then I'll just use ceramic stone just at the front of the toe piece to just behind the heel piece yeah. so it gives you that grip but you've also got the ability to pivot yes. and steer and it's great it is great in that scenario but yeah so it's a similar thing they found this and it's like I'm going to do it tip to tail and off they go yeah. and um, a lad who I used to coach many years ago he's now he's, he's now working he did a race at um, Hill End mm. and dual slalom at the bottom ceramic tip to tail because it was only for the bottom section of hill end he hadn't worn the ceramic away he went to stop locked flipped dislocated his hip oh my god yeah <laughs> i use that as an example when i'm talking to to kids on the dry yeah that if you do ceramic tip to tail you've got you've got to be so so careful yeah it's just it's not a necessary thing to do but they do it because it just gives them that that grip and if the course is set just right they can they can yeah. make it. I just I just took a pair of skis off of um, uh, Andy Freshwater, mm. and uh, I don't know how he sharpened his skis, but he serviced them just before, and I took them out late season. It's been slashy and stuff, but I'm hundred percent convinced he goes tip to tail with his with his thing. Yeah. And I don't do that. I always take off the the, 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 the shovel and uh, and the tail because I like to steer my skis. It's, it's something I like to do, and it's kind of I didn't want that feeling of kind of them being so well, locked yeah. on the snow so like, no this is not how I how I do it I always take off you know a bit of the, uh, the top just so that I can get that it's like, well, I don't know but you even almost that, sort of feather it you know is it on the way in but even that just sharpened tip to tail mm. is still going to make you more able to do it than, than this this ceramic oh yeah it sounds crazy it's, it's, yeah it's cra- it is crazy <laughs> and it, it great when you like everything great when used in moderation yeah to give you to give you an effect or a, a result yeah yeah, yeah, absolutely. Oh, wow, it's like a whole whole new world of things <laughs> I never, never knew about. I certainly wasn't, you know, when I was learning on dress up, I wasn't doing that, that's for sure. No, and we didn't years ago. It's something yeah. that came in in the last maybe 12 years. Okay. And I remember setting at Pontypool as it was coming in and deliberately setting that that you couldn't get round some of the turns. Yeah, you did it like slightly on, just, just on the carve of the ski, you had to be more skillful. You had to use the, yeah. the ski, yeah. Because it was like some of these kids... They could hang on yeah. and they'd win, but their skill level was lower than some of the other kids. And I thought, I want the kids that ski well yeah. Yeah, to yeah. come through. Yeah, sure. I've got something for you, which I heard. I was happened to be my neighbor. This is how you know you're getting on in um, you're getting on in Switzerland. So my neighbor came over. He's a Swiss guy, and he came over to my house. Yeah, I was doing something in the garage, and he came over to me. I was like, Hey, we're going up in the world here. Like yeah. the local is talking to me. Anyway, so he. Um, he said to me that his boy races for Ski Valet, he's doing pretty well. And he said that they've gone training this year. They went to the Ski Valet guys who have access to Glaciers, Zermatt, uh, Sasfe. Langra. They went to Langra. Yeah. Or there's another one somewhere. But Pier. I think it's probably. Pier in Belgium. Yeah. Those Neuss two. in Germany. There's, yeah. a, there's a few. And Wittenberg in Germany That's as well. Dave Riding does a lot of time in Wittenberg. Yeah. Yeah. And he said, he said that they'd done an analysis, the guys at Ski Valley, and they said in an entire morning on the Zermatt Glacier, the guys get to racing gates for 12 minutes. 
So that includes like getting up at seven, going up in the gondola, faffing about at the top. A lot of wasted time. Loads of wasted time. You know, going up on the T-bar, T-bar, you know how slow the T-bar is, you come around all the way from the top, get into your lane, then you have a go, you're in it for 30 seconds. And um, he said, yeah, they get 12 minutes, but they said, what the teams are doing now, and I know it because Team Vo are doing the same thing because uh, I know I skis for them, they're going to these indoor venues because they can lap quicker and they get more training time out of yeah. it, which I was I thought I'd pitch to you to get your thoughts on it because I think that's really, one, bizarre, but secondly, interesting too. We stopped going to glaciers about three years ago right. in the summer because it's so unpredictable. Mm. And, you know, it's certainly we're dealing with kids that are coming from the UK, paying a 1000 a week or whatever yeah. to get to to get to and stay in and pay for lift passes at a glacier mm. and you'll get depending on what the weather's like and looking at it at the minute it's going to be tearing the glaciers apart yeah um, yeah we don't want this to last too long the, it's the amount of time as you say there's a lot of wasted time mm. in the morning and in the afternoon so we decided to start doing three or four trips and last year we ran five and this year we probably got six mm. to Langrath alright um, or Pier just sort of half an hour away from there and out the groups that we're working with love it right because they minibus from the UK yeah three and a half hours from Calais mm. hotel on site 500 metres of slope yeah now you book lanes for about two hours two hours at a time with some of the groups we we have we will do less lanes and more tech yeah but the the amount of time you can get ski snow contact and do that tech or or, or even the gates mm. so much more than you get in a yeah. you know you can be out there for six three three lots of two hours you don't want to be out there for more than two hours at a time because it's freezing yeah <laughs> Scott said and this in the last one it's Baltic in there yeah, in, yeah. Indoor, indoor venues especially Landgraf because it's dark the, the temperature's dark down a little bit more mm. uh, you get so cold and as a coach you're standing around a lot more oh, yeah. yeah so I'm, I'm, I'm boot heaters and yeah lots of lots of layers but you know if the kids if the kids do choose to go if you're doing gates and they choose to go in capsule it's two hours and you, mm. you come out you get hot chocolate you warm up then you go back mm. in so they are great training venues can't you can't ski GS in there no that's what I was going to say to you so there's no do, space to do GS only do slalom right you, and, and to be fair the gradient is such that you're not going to get you're not going to be able to ski a GS ski and get anything out of it yeah worthwhile you can ski it in there but you just can't generate the the forces yeah. so it's, it's great for slalom and lots of people do it and I remember 10 years ago or 11 years ago even being in Landgraf and the Italian tech team were there yeah. testing because on the race side because it's two it's two 30 metre wide slopes on Landgraf mm. one on each side and on the race side they have the uh, as you're looking up the left hand side is injected so it's like that right. and then it eases off as it comes over so it's softer on the right and they were testing next year slalom skis on the injection side. How about that? Yeah. Because there's nowhere in the Northern Hemisphere that you can do that in the summer. Yeah. And, you know, you look at you look at some of these teams and it's becoming a trend yeah. with British academy club groups to go to Chile. Yes, yeah. Or Argentina or um, New Zealand. If they're going there for races, I kind of get it. But it's a bloody long way to go. Yeah. For the training. And then I look at Dave Riding. 
he goes to Wittenberg and he goes on Glacier when the conditions are good. Yeah. I look at Hersher. Hersher was interviewed last year. One of the things he said was, you know, I don't go, I don't travel to the other side of the world yes, for training. Right. He said, why, why would I? Why would I, when I can probably get the type of training I need for summer in the Northern Hemisphere, it's not, not a huge amount of on-ski training. Mm. And that's, that's really interesting. Yeah. That some of the best in the world choose not to do that. Mm. I think that we're going to end up with a, a, a load of kids that are doing too much time on skis and not enough time doing other things. Yeah, well, that's a, that's a whole another argument, isn't it, about uh, specialization? Well, not, not just for specialization, but for their own for their own sort of ski improvement. You think Spend, you can do too much? I, I believe so. Yeah, for sure. You know, and some of these kids are spending their entire winter on snow competing and training. Yeah, actually, in the summer, it, it needs to be dialed down quite a lot. And tra- and getting on a plane for fifteen, twenty hours mm. or more. To go to another country and, and ski on the snow that's it's a little different from what you're going to race on the Northern Hemisphere. Mm. When you could probably, for the same cost and the same time, do several weekends in somewhere where you where you can really hone your technique mm. and also do a lot of fitness strength training. Because let's be honest, the, the age and the, uh, the developmental stage of a lot of these kids, they don't want to be doing a World Cup programme. They don't want to be mm. doing the amount of on ski training and the amount of fitness with it because they will just be exhausted and you're you're heading for injuries by doing that. Yeah, and I see that a lot. Yeah, a lot more than I'd like to see it. Yeah, you know? for sure. And it ha- it happens all the way down. I see, I see groups coming out here that are skiing all day and skiing gates more than probably would be ideal because you know with the level of, of the races skiers we got. Mm. They need to do a lot of work outside the gates. Oh, they can't well, make the changes in the gates. Get me started on that. So we had. Uh, I used to work with the school through my through the ski school that I used to work for, and um, there the principal of that school was like, "No, they've got to ski gates, 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 gates." And the, you know, for their entire training session, I said, "Look, some of these kids are like snow plowing down." They need to be taught to ski. You know, you got to teach them how to ski first, and maximum, you know, we'll, we'll set it. You can look at it a couple of times, ski it three times and then put it out because you know it's about quality not just remorselessly hammering plastic it doesn't work like that and all some of these kids will be doing is surviving yeah they're not able they're to not, learning. not able to make any change to what no. they do no. they become better at surviving it mm. which you can argue is a skill in itself mm. but they also need to they need to actually improve their skiing yeah but so you will see that and then we'll see they'll get them up early in the morning they'll take them for a run They'll do a fitness mm. session with them afterwards. They're on the hill from nine till three or whatever. And these are these are kids. They're school kids. They're not at. They're not professional athletes yet. Mm. You know. So again, you 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 end up with that level of fatigue. It's it's counterproductive. Is that not it, uh, is that not part of what some of these these camps are are doing like to sell themselves? It's yeah. like yeah, you know, there's no downtime. We're always on, on doing something. So, well, that doesn't really help with the development of the child. All that does is it says that you're, you know, that's a marketing point for you. And our, we, I mean, I've always been about educating parents or teachers or whoever why we do what we do the way we do it mm. and explaining to them when they come out to the Alps with the level of kids, a lot of the kids we work with, and you're not going to take them for a run, you're not going to do fitness. We'll do a light run to warm them up. Mm. 
we won't do a fitness session with them. For us, they're out here for four days a week. They don't do this type of intense activity at any other time. So if we start doing fitness with them on top of that, by day three, their performance just drops. So we're not going to do that. But what we will do is we will work with someone with you to help them improve their fitness off the snow. And also, what's the point, right, of doing one ad hoc week of intense fitness if it's not part of a longer term program? Exactly. It doesn't make any sense, exactly. is it? For yeah. us, they're on snow. We want to maximise what they can get out of that on the snow without jeopardising it by overtiring them. Mm. You know, even, even to the point that certainly some days we'll turn around at one o'clock after lunch and have a look at the fatigue levels and go, you know yeah. what, we're, yeah. we're done. We'll go, we'll go and have a relaxed afternoon because we're not we're gonna we're gonna start dropping off tomorrow if we don't do that now there's a certain intuition to managing that as well isn't there yeah i am um, i always talk when we have collective weeks which we, we have some schools that come out to us and, and they ski and i always go in on a, on a wednesday to my team i say watch out team it's muppet wednesday yeah muppet wednesday means that all these kids are tired really tired they, you know they've got off a flight on sunday they're here they've been skiing you know learning something new it's intense and they're exhausted. And today will be the day that they make stupid decisions or, you know, to just take it easy today. It's Muppet Wednesday. And you guarantee none of them go to bed or go to sleep. Oh, they all get put in their rooms. Yeah, they're yeah, all chatting. They're on their phones and yeah. all of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On a more serious race camp, we, we take the kids' phones oh, and, got and iPads and stuff and put them in the living area yeah. and say, you don't have them in bed. That's it. What about my alarm? We'll get you up. Don't worry about that. <laughs> you don't need to worry about the alarm. It's funny, they did that. At, um, I know you don't like football, but they did that at Arsenal Football Club. They took away from the youth setup. No mobile phones allowed anywhere near near it. And they said the kids' reaction times to, well, reaction times in general improved 0.2 of a second. That doesn't surprise Well, you, you just got to look around at kids. Yeah. Walking around everywhere on their phone. Oh, you see it. Especially some, you're in Italy as well, so you see it more than Some anything. of our young coaches, I've had, I've had to just say to them, in the morning, you put your phone in your pocket, yeah. and unless I'm ringing you, yeah. or you've got a parent, or you've got a relative that's dying, mm. you don't look at your phone. No. No. Yeah, because because the kids pick up on it, the parents or teachers pick up on it, mm. so it, it goes away and you don't... It's an interesting generational thing, because this has only passion. really happened in the last, what, 20 years, probably, mobile phone tech, and us as you know, relatively young parents, yeah. we're... we're We've got all this to deal with, uh, or certainly the, the parents of the generation slightly above us have had to go through this. It's like, how do you manage kids' screen time? You know, how do you you ban it completely? You run the risk of them not being up to date, you know, with stuff and how yeah. all this sort of stuff works. But if you overdo it, you've got a kid that's you know overtired or is just yeah. hyped or wired. You know, you've probably sat down and like I have and watched, you know, ten minutes of Peppa Pig with your your kid. And next, you know, you turn it off and they go, look, they're going crazy. It's like, whoa, yeah. hang on a second, what is yeah. this? It's bizarre. Yeah. You know, and that's a whole whole thing that, you know, we're going to have to be really careful with. And we. Yeah, I mean, he's got one of our old iPads, which he, he will have some time each day where he'll play around on kids' YouTube or watch something. Yeah. Um, you know, we're, I said a number of years ago, we were in a restaurant in Flen and his family sat down next to us and they were... About six adults and four kids. Kids were probably somewhere between nine and twelve, nine and thirteen, something like that. Kids sat down. 
as soon as they sat down, each kid got an iPad out ah, at yeah. the table, and the parents continued to chat. And, and oh, I've sat, seen that too. We sat there with our, our coach Lou and I, and we, we said, "That's something I never want to happen." Mm. You know, especially at that age, they should be interacting. Mm. So, we will when we're out. Sometimes, Charlie sat. He's already eaten eaten his food before we've gone out, mm. and he sat there. And then he say, "I'm tired. Can I just watch something on your phone?" I'm like, okay, you're you're there, no problem. But this was like a, oh, it's kind away. of a matter yeah. of, matter of course. This is what we do when we go out. Yeah. It's, like, it's very very interesting that. So I see that a lot, and I don't think it's a very good thing. No. But you know, I'm not. I don't particularly want to judge it too much because I'm not been there. So no, you know, that thing, might happen to me when she's six or seven. Or yeah. I, I hope not, but yeah. you know, it's um. And you've got the other thing, I don't want, you could say, I don't want, um, and I see these kids that have iPhone 10s, 8, 9, 10 years old, yeah. I think, I just don't want my kid to have the latest generation smartphone. In fact, I'd just like to give him a phone that he can, yeah. Yeah, if, yeah. if he needs to, can phone us on. But then you get to that point, and all their mates have got something else. And you're like, it becomes oh. peer pressure, doesn't it? It's yeah, very, it becomes, it's difficult. And you don't want them to get singled out. No. So it's yeah, it's an interesting decisions, and who, no, yeah. and who knows what other? He's three and a half now. By the time he's eight, who, five years time, who knows what other tech's going to be around? When he's ten, when he's fourteen, you know. I can't wait. I personally, I cannot wait until you know maybe one day we sell the business or something about that. He's going straight to bin. <laughs> That's the problem, isn't it? Yeah. Run a, run a business these days, and especially when you're quite mobile and you're here there and everywhere. Oh. It's so useful. That's the problem with it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you've got a computer in your pocket. Yeah. Essence. And, and yeah, you, 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 it's for productivity. It's brilliant. But it's like it just the trouble is it's easy, easy to be sucked in. Yeah. yeah. And that's 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 the big problem. Yeah. So uh, yeah. Oh, it's true. Like in the old days, you probably what were we doing this morning? It was like uh, I was showing showing Zoe what an ostrich was. Now in the old days you would have gone to a wall, you'd have a night encyclopedia on the wall and you pull it out. Yeah. Oh look, this is what an ostrich is. But no, you just fire that up. It's there, instant. Yeah. You know, and and yeah, there's um. Good for that. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, for it's that. good for that stuff. And good you know, using it as an educational thing, I think is good. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's true. Um, what I'm gonna do, I think probably because we've been going, we're going a long time, and I'm well, you have. keen for that. Italian lunch but the um, let's knock it on the head here what I give everyone the chance to do is to promote what they're doing so um, where can people find you if they need you and, and what would you like to well we've got the site impulse-racing.co.uk and I'll add a link to that that's our the notes. kind of core um, the, the race side that we do uh, websites currently being updated and the other thing we do and we've touched on it quite a lot mm. is the National School Snow Sports Association and that's uh, schools snow sports so schools plural snow sports plural all one word dot co dot uk okay and like that's, that too. that's all the school stuff that comes under that and there's info on schools racing etc and then other things we do with that like produce a, an annual magazine that I'm working on at the minute <laughs> for my sins thank you for sending me a copy of those <laughs> I'm uh, halfway through them yeah so yeah, those those two sites are, are the main ones, and then yeah, you can find you can find us on um, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Just yeah. look for School Snow Sports on yeah. those, or 
or impulse racing okay you'll find those i'll find those and i'll add the uh, the links to those cool. thank you so much no problem it's been absolutely brilliant appreciate that no problem